You are listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's October 20th. Tomorrow marks two weeks since Hamas, the militant Islamist group that governs Gaza, launched a sweeping and brutal attack on Israel. The surprise assault and the fighting that followed have left many thousands of Israelis and Palestinians dead or wounded. In recent days, the humanitarian situation in Gaza has worsened as Israel has ordered Palestinian civilians to move south and retaliatory airstrikes have intensified. Fortunately, there's one positive development. The United Nations has brokered an agreement that lays the groundwork for humanitarian aid to enter Gaza. As we record this on Friday afternoon, it's unclear exactly what will happen next, but the Israel Defense Forces are widely expected to launch a ground invasion any day now. RAND researchers have been weighing in on the deteriorating situation in the region. In today's episode, we'll share a summary of insights they've provided so far. In interviews with outlets such as Vox, NPR, and The Washington Post, and in commentaries in the Los Angeles Times and USA Today. Raphael Cohen, who led a RAND study of Israel's previous wars in Gaza, writes that the horrific attacks by Hamas underscore the inevitable and ongoing failure of what many Israeli analysts have called their country's mowing-the-grass strategy. It goes like this, he says, Palestinians who are frustrated by the awful conditions in Gaza turn to groups like Hamas for vengeance against Israel, if nothing else. Israel then imposes restrictions, such as the blockade on Gaza, citing security concerns. Living conditions in Gaza get even worse as a result, and unrest grows. Hamas and others capitalize on this unrest and attack Israel. And then Israel responds by mowing the grass, so to speak. In other words, it kills the perpetrators of the attack, along with some number of Palestinian civilians. And this buys Israel, at best, a few years of relative peace, while fueling more radicalization over the longer term. And then the cycle continues. In other words, the assault by Hamas earlier this month wasn't just an intelligence failure or an operational failure, Cohen says. It was a sweeping strategic failure, one fueled by hubris, an assumption that Israel could get the balance just right, hitting Hamas hard enough to deter it from attacking Israel, but not so hard that Gaza implodes into chaos or explodes into a regional war. This is an impossible balance to strike, Cohen says, especially considering the dire conditions in Gaza. So, assuming Israel does launch a large-scale operation to destroy Hamas, how can it ensure that it's not just repeating the awful cycle we've seen so many times before? Cohen says that after the fighting is done, Israel will have to rebuild Gaza into something better, give Palestinians a chance at economic prosperity, and help ensure that they have political options besides Hamas or the corrupt Palestinian Authority. This will be difficult, and may be hard for some Israelis to stomach, considering Hamas's recent atrocities. But otherwise, Cohen warns, 
Israel will again be mowing the grass, as the Israeli analogy goes, only to watch it grow back. Turning to more immediate operational concerns, Cohen noted Hamas's use of relatively low-tech commercial drones in its deadly surprise attacks. He anticipates that Hamas will continue to use this capability going forward. The availability of hobby and commercial drones has leveled the playing field when groups like Hamas are battling more sophisticated armies, Cohen says. Another important consideration for Israel is Hamas's vast network of tunnels, which Cohen said could make Israel's impending ground invasion, quote, very messy. Other RAND researchers also commented on the complexities of tunnel warfare. Tunneling remains a very effective way for one side to literally undermine another's dominance of the surface, says senior engineer Scott Savitz. The opposing side, quote, never knows whether tunnels exist, how many there are, or where they are. They only know the ones they found. Senior historian John Gentile agrees, and even described the expected war in Gaza as a, quote, battle for the tunnels. The tunnels are a hub of power and movement for Hamas, he said. It will be critical, but very difficult, for Israeli ground forces to deal with them. Gentile also remarked on the sheer scale of the Israeli mobilization. In 2009, for Operation Cast Lead, Israel called up around 30,000 reservists. Today, it's calling up around 300,000. That suggests that Israel views this as a fight for its existence. Israel can achieve its stated objective of destroying Hamas, Gentile says, but history tells us that tunnel warfare and urban combat are especially horrific. There's going to be a lot of hard fighting and a lot of destruction, he says. Another question Israeli decision-makers must grapple with is how to protect innocent civilians while conducting an urban military operation, especially when the enemy, Hamas, is so integrated into the civilian population. The moral obligation to reduce civilian harm cannot be ignored, says Karen Sudkamp, a management scientist at RAND and a former intelligence analyst. She highlights key lessons from the civil war in Syria that apply to Gaza. Specifically, previous RAND research on the U.S.-led battle to expel ISIS from the town of Raqqa, Syria, provides important insights. ISIS used civilian infrastructure as a defense against U.S. forces in Syria, and Hamas has a history of doing this too. This will require Israel to carefully consider decisions about individual strikes, with an eye toward minimizing civilian harm. Such considerations could help reduce civilian casualties in Gaza. That said, unfortunately, civilian deaths and infrastructure damage can never be completely prevented, even with precision weapons. A lack of access to food, water, and shelter can also endanger civilians in a war zone. In Syria, humanitarian corridors helped civilians escape Raqqa and obtain access to basic resources. This was critical for evacuating civilians and reducing civilian deaths. Similar escape routes could save civilian lives in Gaza as well, but there are challenges. For instance, the border crossing between Gaza and Egypt is reportedly damaged and closed. This could leave residents of Gaza trapped and vulnerable. 
Sudkamp emphasizes that one of the distinctions between the international community and organizations such as Hamas and ISIS is a commitment to protecting civilians during conflict. As we mentioned earlier, Israel is facing what many of its citizens view as a fight for its very existence. While extracting vengeance may seem legitimate, Sudkamp writes, listening to better angels could help reduce civilian harm in the long run. Finally, let's briefly discuss other players that might be shaping recent events in the region. Bruce Bennett, an international and defense researcher and an expert on North Korea, commented on the possible connection between Hamas and Pyongyang. North Korea has provided training and weapons to foreign military personnel many times before, he says. And North Korea denying that any of its weapons are being used by Hamas is, quote, exactly what we would expect from Kim Jong-un's regime. Raphael Cohen discussed the potential involvement of another actor, Iran. Many who are closely following the Israel-Hamas war have considered whether Iran might directly intervene. This is probably one of the less likely scenarios, said Cohen. But if Israel were to strike Iran or vice versa, then that could trigger a regional war with broad implications for many countries. You can find many of the items we discussed today in our show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll keep posting more on the conflict to our social media feeds as the situation in Gaza evolves. So make sure to follow Rand if you aren't already. That's it for today's episode. We'll see you next week. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis.